Dearly beloved brothers and sisters, friends and family, ladies and gentlemen, we gather today to talk about the sermon. The sermon. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear that one word, sermon? What memories, images, or associations does it invoke? For some of us, the sermon is something to be uh, endured. It's It's a tradition. It's an obligation. It's something that we get through. It's boring, insipid, it's lifeless. It raises the all-important question, when is lunch? For some of us, the sermon, for many of us I would say, the sermon is something to be evaluated. There's the all-important question, did you like it? Did you like it? I liked it. Did you like it? I like the first part. I like the beginning. I like the end. I didn't like it. I like the stories. I like the video clips. I took notes. Did you you like it? The sermon. We talk about the sermon as if it's a, a, a sweater or a pair of trousers. I have thought recently when I talked to a group of young seminarians, some preachers talking about sermons and their future, and I, I shared with them this idea that I've had in my imagination that Martin Luther King, I envision on that day when he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech, I bet there were some, maybe a few, who went away that day and some of them thought, he went a little long. I, I've heard a few of those stories before, Right? And it begs the question, as we consider the sermon, why would anyone do this? I said to those young guys, are you sure? Are you sure you want to be a preacher? Are you sure you want to stand up? Because there's those moments when you're doing this and you're in your office and you're ready for Sunday. Sunday's coming, right? And let's say Sunday's coming. And you're ready for Sunday. You're like, let me at it. Let me get at it. And then you leave the church building that day and you think, what just happened? And there's that lonely moment when you're standing up there. And people are not looking at you any longer. They're looking down and away. They're no longer looking at you. They feel bad for you. And you look over to your spouse. And she's she's not there. (laughs) Or she's looking down. And she's thinking, we'll talk about this when you get home. And the extremes, I told these young guys, trust me, I know, there's some extremes in this preaching thing in terms of getting a response from people, this, this performance, if you will. And for some, there's one extreme is crickets. And the other is, that was the most powerful word I've ever heard. And sometimes it's so weird, it's so odd, because you can think you've got one that's going to elicit that kind of response, and you get crickets. And you deliver one that was just really poorly prepared. And you're wondering, wow, this is going to fall flat. I think it did fall flat. And then someone will tell you how God used it in their lives. You see, I believe that the sermon has taken a bit of a hit lately. But I believe in my heart that it's making a comeback. As our world gets more Twitterized, there's something beautiful about this primitive, ancient sacred art form that's coming back, an actual people in an actual room listening to someone in real time actually talk about something that actually matters. And I believe that everybody like me who has this responsibility with its pressures and its perks and its privileges and its great honor, I believe that everybody like me needs to realize that Jesus is the real sermon preacher. In fact, Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever known to man. And I'm going to tell you as these weeks unfold that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is really the reason I am a Jesus follower today. From an intellectual standpoint, from a heart standpoint, there's no better teaching, no better penetrating analysis of your condition and mine, no better psychology, if you will, no better opportunity for life change than Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. We might actually look at it today. If not, uh, we'll, we're, we're going to walk through it uh, verse by verse over these next several weeks. The sermon that Jesus preached, it's power, it just radiates. But what you need to know is it's one of these sermons when you, when you look at it and you see all the things that He talks about, the first thing that probably it brings to mind or causes you to think is, what does He mean by what He's saying? And then it's going to make you think, man, to live this out, I've got to be a little bit weird. And here's what I want to say to you. Um, and this sermon that we're going to look at over these few weeks is recorded in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Those are the verses that come right before, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And these subversive, provocative, countercultural, really different types of teaching that Jesus gives us can really stir us up. And in us all, it will probably leave us with a sense of, I don't measure up. Now, this is going to sound like Christ is cruel, but that's the effect that He wants it to have. And I'm the preacher. That means I'm a lot better than most of you, right? But as the preacher, I can say, I look at this afresh, and I can tell you, I don't measure up. But I love what He says here. I told you earlier that the posture toward a sermon for many of us is to, is to endure it or to evaluate it. And in the evaluation, we ask those questions, do you like it? Did you like it? And we ask the question, did they do good? And sometimes I want to go, how'd you do? Because you see, the fundamental posture, according to Jesus and all of His teachings, and you'll, we'll get there at Matthew 7, 24 to 28, with that, that parable about the, the storms and the sand and the rock and how you build your house and who's foolish and who's wise. But the fundamental posture of a sermon, according to Jesus, is not, did you like it? It's, did you listen? And did you hear? Remember the words of Jesus often. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But you and I struggle, and I'm telling you, I do. We struggle with a knowing-doing gap. There's a big gap between what we know and what we do. Many years ago, Susan and I were staying in an opulent guest home with a rich family. They were supporting our ministry to college students. Said, here's a place to stay. The rent wasn't much. The neighborhood was great. We said, we'll take it. Let me pray about it. We'll take it. And we moved in and they put a fence. They had some of their yard guys come over and put a fence, a beautiful fence. It enhanced the curb appeal. It really looked good from the street, but backing out, you really couldn't see the fence post. It came right to the edge of the driveway, but you couldn't really see it well when you were leaving the guest house, our house, and backing up. I lectured my wife, my newlywed. I said, I know how you drive. I know you, woman. I know your tendencies and your patterns. You are a multitasker. You have people with you or you're talking on the phone. You're going to run over those fence posts. Don't do that. Be careful. I, I beseech thee. Don't do this. I know you're going to do it. I implore you from the depths of my heart. Don't do this. You're going to do it. I know you're going to do it. You're going to hit the fence post. We had friends come visit us. I gave them the same lecture while Susan rolled her eyes. And they had friends that were coming over. There's just a lot of people going back and forth in this driveway. I gave them the same speech. And the very next day, after I told them, somebody's going to hit it. You know what? Somebody hit it. You want to guess who did? Anybody want to guess? You don't have to point, okay? You don't have to point. Give me some dignity here. You see, I knew, but I didn't do. Actually, I did. That was a problem. But you know what I'm saying? 
I knew, but I didn't do. If you're going to be a driver, everybody that's learned to drive, you're given a book that you're supposed to study. It's called The Rules of the Road. Am I right? The Rules of the Road. And you need to know this. There's a a test, a written test. There's a driver's test. And you need to know the rules of the road. Well, forget about me and my driveway and that fence I hit. Let's picture you driving and you're going over the speed limit. You failed to yield. You ran a red light. You did them all. Officer pulls you over. Suppose you, in your imagination, say to him, Officer, I know the book. I understand the book. I studied and I did very well on the test. I agree with the book. I was driving 55 in my heart. Does that, will that impress that officer that pulled you over? It's not the knowing, is it? It's the doing. And therein is the gap. And there is the beauty of this matchless teacher named Jesus, who teaches us from this. In fact, let's read it. How about that? Let's read from the Bible. Y'all want to do that? Matthew 5, 1 through 13. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. By the way, preacher plug here. Thanks for coming at 930. Last week, everybody came at 11. People left. We couldn't find them. We were slamming them on the stage. Thank you for coming. There was a crowd at 11 o'clock last week. Everybody got confused and came at 11. Thank you for coming at 930. Keep coming at 930. Seeing the crowds, those were in the thousands, by the way. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Here we go, y'all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus knew he was going to impact these guys' lives, and it wasn't going to be easy, was it? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's the most oft-repeated word that we just read in the Sermon on the Mount? Say it. Bless. And what does it mean? Say it. You're scared to, aren't you? You ready? This is going to be good. You ready? It means happy. It means happy. In fact, let me show you, Lord, if we could. I'm going to show you the Greek word. We've got it big and italicized. Makaros is the word that Jesus uses here. I read a long time ago, and it stood with me. It says that if we're not fortified by good ideas, we'll be victimized by bad ideas. And I believe, let me say it again, if we're not fortified, if you and I are are not fortified by good ideas, will be victimized by bad ideas. Now, here's what I'm saying this morning. I think that you and I have a lot of bad ideas about happiness. And it's why we need the beauty of this word, makaros. It means a deep, abiding joy. It's a, a, an inner contentedness that is not affected by outward circumstances. It is this quiet life-altering assurance that every moment, every breath, every circumstance that you are in the hands of a good God. That He's got you. 
It's not fleeting. The first thing I want to say, I want to say three things about the word makaros as I interpret this word and studied it this week. The first thing I would say to you is that makaros happiness is not a shallow sentiment. It's a deep virtue. It's not a shallow sentiment. It's a deep virtue. There was a celebrity in town this week. You know who I'm talking about this weekend? Dan Ackward. I thought some of you would go with Jamie Lynn Spears who last night played music right here. How cool is that, people? Britney Spears' sister was right here. Let's just have a moment. Let's just think about it. Let the gravity, let the weight of it fall down right here. Jamie Lynn Spears. And some of you were here, by the way. You were. I'm trying not to look at you now, but I know you were here. But way bigger than Jamie Lynn Spears, hard to imagine. Dan Aykroyd, okay? Maybe this is a generational thing, but you, you remember Dan Aykroyd? Most of you do. Uh, Ghostbusters, who you're going to call? Blues Brothers, we're on a mission from God. And Dan Aykroyd is known, has been known as one of society's funny men. I was just whipping down Lakeland yesterday and noticed the line outside the liquor store. He was there to sign tequila bottles or something, right? Uh, again, some of you were there. But um, I just... We'll put names up at the end of the service, but mostly 11 o'clock people, not many 930s. But there was a long line of other people from other churches waiting for Dan Aykroyd to sign their tequila bottle or something. Vodka, thank you. Sorry. That's, uh, that's Richard Polson who said vodka. His wife is Sharon and they live in the reservoir. They're new here at Fondren. Welcome. Um, Dan Aykroyd was there signing vodka bottles. But before he came to Jackson to sign vodka bottles, he was a blues brother and a ghostbuster and a funny man on SNL. But what I have observed over the years that some, is that some of the funniest people, some of those who make millions, making millions of people laugh, there is this gap between the public laughter and their private pain. See Dan Aykroyd's friend. John Belushi. Think Chris Farley. Think Phil Hartman. There are others that escape me in the moment. Funny guys. You see, this makaros, this blessedness, this happiness, this joy that Jesus is talking about is not a cool joke or a clever laugh line. It's something way beyond the fleeting circumstances of life. The second thing to say about it, it's not induced by... It's not induced by circumstances, but it's produced by God. But that's where it separates us, doesn't it? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I'm with you. I mean, I, I get up in the morning, my feet hit the floor. I want favorable circumstances, right? Starting domestically. I want my family to do my bidding. I don't want them to be sick or hurt or coughing or in my way. I want them to be joyful. I want them to greet me, right? I want favorable circumstances. But what Jesus is talking about with makaros, this Greek word, it, it is a, it, it's produced by God. And see Galatians chapter 5, verses 23, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. You see, Jesus uh, soon hereafter would talk to the people, religious and non-religious, everybody who's seeking, the crowd, the curious, the committed. He would say to them that if you follow me, there will be rivers of living water. Your life could flow. It could be a blessing. Remember what Todd, God told Abraham. Did I call God Todd? Remember what God just told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That I will bless you. You will be a blessing to the nations. I will bless you to bless others. 
And Jesus is saying, this joy that I want to give to you, you don't, it's not induced by the moment. It's not induced by favorable circumstances, but it's something that God will produce in you. So we don't have to try a lot harder. We don't have to strive in our religious activity. We really need to learn quietness, simplicity, solitude, Sabbath, a yielding to Him, a realizing that He has done the work for us. Third thing I want to say about this beautiful word that Jesus uses is that Makaros, this joy, it comes not from getting what you want, but from knowing that you're loved. And that's the gospel. It didn't come from getting what you want. It comes from knowing that you're loved. And maybe... Maybe it's not knowing. Maybe it's knowing. Maybe it's experiencing. Remember we've talked before, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of us want to eradicate emotion from our experience in church and life. Taste and see. Know that you are loved. And let it get deep. Now, I think that's why Jesus started out with these eight attitudes that we'll be talking about. He started out by saying poor in spirit. Now forget the last part. Just think poor. Why would Jesus say poor? Because it's different than rich. And what do rich people want? Rich people want to get, right? Rich people think it's all about the acquisition. It's all about what I consume. I loved reading this week about an American investment banker who was spending some knockout, some downtime at a pier at a small coastal fishing village down in Mexico. And he saw a Mexican fisherman uh, come up on the boat. And he looked over and noticed that the Mexican fisherman had a small boat, but it was full of large, thin tuna. And he looked at him with curiosity and said, nice catch. How long did that take you? And the Mexican fisherman said, just a little while. Just a little while. He said, well, what do you do the rest of the day? He said, well... You know, I wake up and spend a little time with my family, with my children. Um, I hang out. I sleep late. I do a little fishing. I take a afternoon siesta with my wife, Maria. And then in the evening, most evenings, I stroll into the village, sip a little wine and play guitar with my amigos. An American investment banker said, you know, I, I could really help you. I'm a Harvard MBA. He said, you know, what you need to do is fish longer, fish more, and sell that and get a bigger boat. And then when once you've got the bigger boat, you're, you're catching more fish, selling more fish. You've got a bigger boat, you buy more boats, and then you'll have a fleet of boats. In fact, let me give you some advice because, I, you know, i got that Harvard MBA. Let me tell you, as an American investment guy, I can tell you that, that what you need to do is quit selling straight to the middleman. Go directly to the processor. You'll own the product, the processing, the distribution. Of course, you know, it's going to get large and you'll need to move to probably Mexico City, eventually to L.A., and ultimately to New York City where you will run your ever-expanding enterprise. The Mexican fisherman said, how long will this take? The Harvard MBA investment banker American guy said, it'll probably take 20 to 25 years. That's according to my plan. Then what? The Mexican fisherman asked. He said, well, then you go public. You announce an IPO. And you tell the world 
that you're about to go public with this thing and you publicly trade your stock and you will become rich. You will make millions. And the Mexican fisherman said, and then what? And he said, you can hang out at a small Mexican village. You can sleep late. You can fish a little bit. You can play with your children, take siesta with your wife Maria. In the evenings, you can stroll into the village and sip a little wine and play guitar with your amigos. The parable, it can sit with us, can it? In fact, reading this week, I, I hearken back to that bestseller from many years ago, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I, I didn't read the book, but I understand that the basic premise of the book is rich people know the difference between an asset and a liability. Now, how masterful is that? I mean, that's a New York Times bestseller. That impacted lives to say that the biggest difference between rich and poor is those who know the difference between an asset and a liability. But yet, this guy may know something about us. And we were ravenous in buying that book, some of you, and reading that book and trying to learn from it. What is a rich person and what is a poor person? We've got to know the difference between an asset and a liability. But do we know? And I think Jesus is taking it and spinning it a little bit. And He's getting us to ask the question, why our running and striving and our clamor and our hurry? Why the the motives and the ambitions in our heart to get, get, get? Joy comes in knowing that you're loved. Not in, not in the striving. But this, this poor in spirit. What, is it, what does it look like? Let me say this. Poor in spirit is not this. It's not being down in the dumps. It, it, poor in spirit doesn't mean being down in the dumps. When my youngins were little, I, I remember reading to them uh, that famous Winnie the Pooh. And Winnie the Pooh had a friend, right? Do you remember? Is it Eeyore, the sad-faced donkey friend? And this guy, the motto was, dreary beats cheery. And someone would say in the Winnie Pooh story, oh, it's sunny outside. And the sad-faced donkey would say, but it's going to rain. In his monotone voice. Jesus is not saying, be a sad-faced donkey. He's not saying, have bad posture and let your shoulders slump. And be the Debbie Downer negative Nelly that some of you can be. It's, it doesn't mean be down in the dumps. What then is Jesus saying about being poor in spirit? A lot of you I know have water skied, right? On the beautiful backwaters of the reservoir. Fresh and clean water. I don't know if you water ski regularly, or I bet a good portion of our room has, some of you, uh, right here locally. But if you'll harken back and you'll remember when you first learned to water ski, do you remember that moment? Some of you, you remember that when you were in the water and there were people in the boat, and you're there in the water and you've got that jacket on that's kind of up to your jawbone, your teeth are, you know, shaking a little bit, and the but people in the boat are telling you what? They're giving you instruction. They've already given you a lot of instruction when you got out into the water, but they're telling you from the boat, they're telling you to keep the rope. Uh, the, the ski rope between your knees, between the actual skis, right? And then as you sit there, you're wondering, you want to you pull yourself up, don't you? You're trying to figure out how to, 
how to do this. And you, there's people watching. You don't want to be embarrassed. And everybody in the boat, okay, everybody in the boat will yell out. And what will they say? The last minute is, what will they say? Good. Great group here at 930. <laughs> they will say, let the boat pull you up. Right? Let the boat pull you up. And the idea in water skiing, it just, if you've water skied, you know, if you're the person in the boat, you know that that's how you learn. It's really important for you to let the boat pull you up for there's no other way. And if you try to pull yourself up, you're going to go over the skis and water's going to get in your suit and people are going to laugh. The idea, the premise of water skiing seems different, doesn't it? Lean back to go forward. Stay down to get up. It's really what Jesus is saying. Because he flips the script. And to be poor in spirit is to say, I can't get up on my own. Can't do it. Just as a novice water skier, as any water skier knows, to get up, the boat must pull you up. And for you to have a life that Jesus promises, to experience this makeros, this joy, this blessedness, you have to get first and foremost, and I think the chronology is important, we'll be unpacking this, but I think the very first thing he says is the, is the first thing that we need to hear. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they need him to be pulled up, to be rescued. And what does that mean for us? I think Jesus is saying to us that you've got to do what you don't think you have to do. You cannot do this on your own. And when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is saying, blessed are those who are lacking. Blessed are those who do not measure up. Blessed are those who do not have it together. Blessed are those who are hopeless. Blessed are those who are in distress, who are under pressure, who are feeling a great weight. Blessed are those who are geeks, who are wimps, who are nerds. Blessed are those who have dandruff and blemishes and bad hair and bad breath. Blessed are those who are chronically angry, sexually addicted, Mentally ill. Blessed are those who are divorced, who worry. Blessed are the homeless. Blessed are those whose lives are just wrecked. Blessed are those who are dropouts and burnouts and leftouts. Now, what are the implications? I want to read an email I got a good while ago. From a young lady in our church. She wrote this. Robert, I need a little help slash advice. I have a friend that came to Fondren Church for a while but no longer attends and now claims to not really be into the whole church thing. I know that it happens with people sometimes. They get into church and then for whatever reason they end up not liking it and they don't come back. Which to put it simply just sucks. So I asked them. What the deal was, and was there a whole list of reasons, but a few bothered me, or there was a whole list of reasons, but a few bothered me more than others. One of the main reasons was they felt like it was a popularity contest, and if you weren't popular, then you were treated differently. 
They also said they felt slighted by people, like their sins were uglier or worse than everyone else's. At first I was just mad and more trying to point a finger at an individual for it, but the more I thought about it, I guess it just kind of sunk in that it doesn't matter who said what or who acted in a certain way. It's still my responsibility as a Christian and part of the church to try to prevent these things from happening and not let people turn away from the real reasons you should be here. What can we do? What can we say that will make a difference in how they look at church? I think this sermon is really important in this sermon series. For us to come together and to say that there's nobody here that can pull themselves up. There are at many homes, many of your homes, there's a a mat at the front door. And on a lot of those mats that's been this way for decades, the mat says a word. The mat says, welcome. And the idea there is if you take it literally, the idea there is it's saying, it's an invitation to someone at the door to say, we're not neutral about your presence here. We want you to come in. We, we want you to feel at home. We, we're glad that you're here. We want to celebrate. We want to celebrate you here. And I think part of the beauty of this Sermon on the Mount is that we would live out our poverty of spirit. And I don't know how to do that. All I know is we need a few more outcasts. And rebels, not the old Miss kind, but rebels and misfits and dissidents and rule breakers and people that are just on the margins. We need more of that as a church, don't we? But then those of us who appear to be popular, bright, and educated, the, the people who appear to have it together, we need to be careful of our posture from the, how we greet people to how we relate to people to who we let in our small group to who we spend time with to how we serve in our church family. But what if God were to bless us with this beautiful joy that would take root and bear fruit in our lives, in our groups, in our, in our church family? You could feel it when you came in the door. That it wasn't a popularity contest. There's not a, a hierarchy. That as the great black spiritual preacher said, that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That we would be a more welcoming church. And the closer people got to us, the more they would see our poverty in spirit. Less bragging. A few closing thoughts. First, the first fledgling step to happiness is humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because you see, proud people are not happy people. And lastly, I would say happy people, they don't brag, they beg. And if you think, preacher, that's not right, we don't beg. We've got more dignity than that. We've got more decorum. We don't beg around here. Then you're missing the essence of the gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Would you pray? Lord, this beautiful teaching, Lord, I pray that it would penetrate us afresh.
And no doubt with people here today, so many people here today, many of us have heard, some of us have it memorized in our hearts. But Lord, that knowing-doing gap is just so great. Lord, we pray against the pride that would prevent us from growing, that would allow us to walk by people in need, that would give a wrong view of what our church strives to become. Lord, we want to pray for your work in us. Lord, I pray that these weeks, uh, Lord, that we bring the sermon back and we think about it afresh, that it's not something to be endured or evaluated. It's something not to be liked even. It's something that we are to listen to. It's something that's to evoke action. And all these teachings that you gave in this beautiful passage of Scripture, it it, it goes toward this idea of we're, we're foolish if we don't live it out, but we're wise if we do. Lord, we pray against the posing and the pretense. We pray against the bragging and the striving, the marketing of ourselves. Lord, let us welcome people. Let us be a church, as we've said before, where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible. Build that into us. Jesus.